Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College podcast presented by Rapsodo. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me as always is Joe Healy. And just wanted to give you a quick word about Rapsodo, our presenting sponsor. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. So you can check out that Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. Joe, you and I are here. It is the middle of September somehow already. Uh, We are going to be joined by UCF coach Greg Lovelady in a little bit to talk about the Knights who are off to a fantastic start in the 2020 season. Uh, and still look like a pretty intriguing team for 2021 uh, after uh, not losing that many guys over the summer. Um, so they they look like a leading contender in the American Athletic Conference again this year. So uh, excited to to talk with Greg Lovelady about uh, you know just the the night's progress and and uh, what they what clicked in 2020 and and where they go from here. Uh, but before then, we've uh, Right. In addition to that, we've got uh, also some, some talk about transfers. We, we've done some, uh, some rounding up of all of the transfer action over the summer. And then we'll also get to a little bit about the idea of an all-inclusive NCAA tournament uh, with 294 teams and how you make that work. So we'll get to, uh, to all of that and you know, who knows what all else uh, on this week's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. Did you, did you, uh, how much college football did you watch this? Uh, we're just coming off of the first real feeling, probably not so much to you, someone who has ties to the big 10 conference, but, uh, the first pseudo real feeling college football weekend, how much did you end up consuming? Uh, almost none. Maybe really? actually okay. none. I, I, at one point I looked, I had like the ESPN app open. I had time to, to watch something and I looked at whatever the available games were. Uh, I know UNC, it was late. UNC was up on uh, whatever. Syracuse. Syracuse, yeah, that game was, I knew that game was not interesting. I don't remember what else was up in the middle of the afternoon. And I just looked at it, I was like, no, none of this. And I clicked on um, Belgian soccer, or no, Dutch soccer. Yeah, Dutch soccer. Oh, so The Eredivisie. Yes, the Eredivisie, Feyenoord finishing up a uh, or, or one two to nothing. So I watched none. I everyone you know I, I listen to a lot of college football podcast material. I consume a lot of college football stuff. I really like the like college football. Everyone seemed to be saying this was the first like weekend because the Big Twelve was playing and the ACC was playing and there was even ACC games. You know, like that UNC Syracuse game, uh, but I don't know. Like 
first of all, the SEC isn't playing. So not even everyone that's supposed to be playing this fall is playing yet. And then second of all, you're missing six conferences. Uh, so, I mean, I guess it's nice that there was more action, but I don't think the first weekend for real, real is going to be until the end of September. Uh, you know, when you get every conference that's supposed to be playing this fall into action. And then, you know, also, I, you know, I, I, I try and track all of the baseball players that are playing football. And so I went through the box scores on Sunday of everyone that I knew of, and there was not a whole lot of crossover going on. And some of that's because, you know, Jerry Neely and John Rice Plumley and Maurice Hampton all play in the SEC. Um, and there are a couple other SEC guys. Uh, but there, there was also just, you know, some of the, you know, the, the big freshmen did not play, like Cade Horton did not play for, for Oklahoma, not unsurprisingly. I was a little surprised not to see Nate McCollum not in the game for Georgia Tech. Uh, but at the same time, Georgia Tech didn't actually play that many players looking at the participation chart in a uh, close upset at Florida State. So, you know, maybe Georgia Tech gets out of ACC play and, um, next weekend against UCF. I think they're at home. Maybe we'll get to see McCollum play or Maybe not. Who knows? But I was uh, I was a little disappointed by the overall schedule, and then the next day I was a little disappointed by the lack of uh, of baseball crossover in the box scores. Yeah, that uh, I watched a little of that UNC Syracuse game, and it, that one was one of the weirder games I watched because because of the limits here in North Carolina on who can be in the stadium, there were very very few people there. I think there were some parents of some seniors. I think is what it ended up being limited to essentially. But there was no band specifically. So in some of the other games, and you know, at Florida State, for example, they played Georgia Tech, which was a pretty good game. I enjoyed that game. I watched a lot of that. There was at least there wasn't as much crowd noise from a traditional sense, but you could still hear the band. And so to me, that made it seem like, I don't know, 85% of a normal atmosphere, even though you didn't have the traditional crowd noise. So I think that was that was helpful there. But the UNC game, UNC uh, game early in the day was really strange. And so was the Clemson Wake game, which was played at Wake with no fans. That one was a weird one. Or uh, I even slummed it and watched a little bit of Kansas Coastal Carolina. I fell asleep to that game, and Kansas didn't have any fans in attendance either. And so that one just had an eerie quality to it because Kansas also was getting stomped by Coastal Carolina. So there was there was that. But uh, yeah, weird day, Coach. I'm with you in that. I think maybe once we get SEC play underway, maybe it will feel. Um, as, as close to real as, as we're going to get, perhaps. We'll have to see what happens with some of these other conferences that are trying to wade in. One, one more football thing. Did you see the, did, did you see the highlight of this, the, what happened with the Citadel's punter? I did not. So this guy, I feel, oh, my goodness. Because this is exactly – if I was a punter, this is exactly the way it would go. So he, he's, t- he's punting from his own end zone. So the ball's on, like, the 10-yard line. And he, so he's standing basically heels in the end zone. And this, the snap is good, but it slips out of his hands. He tried to rush. And then so the ball's in the ground and he kind of panics, as we all would, right? So then, but he actually collects himself enough to at least try to get his, rather than just fall on the ball or try to run with it, he, he tries to get a punt off. But it's a squib. It goes straight up in the air and comes straight back down into the arms of a South Florida, well, what ended up being a return man. I'm sure it wasn't designed as the return man, uh, in the end zone for a touchdown. So it was a negative 10-yard punt with a zero-yard return for a touchdown just went straight up and straight down into the hands of a return man standing in the end zone. 
It was the just the craziest thing I think I saw all day on Saturday. You couldn't have done that if you tried. That is uh, not what you want. Unfortunate. I felt I felt for the kid because, like I said, that that is it. Because I'm not throwing stones here. If I was clearly, I'm not a college football punter. But even if I was, like, I just think that's how it would go for me. So, um, but yes. Yeah, so I, I don't know how we transition out of that and into college baseball talk. But I guess we're going to give it the old uh, college try. <laughs> I'm trying to see if uh, Coastal still has their former baseball player on their football staff, and uh, I'm coming up empty here. Um, but in uh, in any event, uh, that is uh, just getting any um, you know college uh, co- college uh, uh, football. There, there's the word. <laughs> like that's. Um, it's important that, that that comes back because, you know, this is a, a, a big part of college athletics and, and just what that means for universities and athletic departments as a whole. So for, for everyone that is able to, uh, to play, you know, that's, um, that, that's very nice to see. And now I now see that Tyler Chadwick, uh, um, the shots, uh, national championship team in 2016. He is now at Charlotte uh, on the offensive staff as grad assistant. So uh, no longer at his alma mater. But shouts to Tyler Chadwick's uh, Niners who uh, who got started this weekend as well. And that is officially what they're going to be called on this podcast is Tyler Chadwick's 49ers. Um, they lost to App State. So there's your college football update. Uh, we've been the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, I promise we'll get to uh, to baseball here in a second. We'll we'll be talking with Greg Lovelady uh, about the Knights as they go into fall ball. And again, the, they were 15 and three this spring, off to a great start. Had swept Auburn. Um, was very excited to see what they looked like going into uh, AAC play. We were obviously not able to do that, but I will be excited to see what they have on the field in 2021. Uh, just a, you know, an intriguing program within that conference. Before we get to that interview, I want to tell you, I want to bring you another word from our sponsors. As guys, so much of our identity is wrapped up in our hair from how it feels after getting a fresh cut to the way it's perfectly styled before going out. That's why when we get into our 20s and 30s and start noticing the first signs of hair loss, it definitely feels like panic time. Because let's face it, no guy is ever ready to go bald. Thankfully now, there's Keeps. There's a simple and easy way to keep your hair. Two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35. The best way to prevent hair loss is to do something about it while you still have hair left. So you can get treated from home with Keeps. You used to have to go to the doctor's office for your hair loss prescription. Now, thanks to Keeps, you can visit a doctor online and get hair loss medication delivered right to your home. They make it easy and deliver your medication every three months so you can say goodbye to pharmacy checkout lines and awkward doctor visits. Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. You may have tried them before, but never for this price. Prevention is key. Keeps treatments typically take between four to six months to see results, so it's important to act fast. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash baseballamerica to receive your first month of treatment 
for free. That's keeps.com slash baseball America. K-E-E-P-S dot com slash baseball America. All right. So with that, let's get to UCF coach Greg Lovely. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we're excited to be joined by UCF coach Greg Lovelady. The Knights uh, were off to a to a great start in 2020, coach, and you were you were off to a 15 and three start. You've had a big weekend at at Auburn in non conference play. Um, before before everything got shut down there, what what clicked for the Knights this spring? Uh, I mean, it was I think it was a a mix of a lot of different things. Um, you know, I thought we were we had some we're really talented on the mound. Obviously, that that helps a bunch and gets really gets the game going and sets the tone for the entire team. Uh, we were very young offensively, but you know, having Ted Tom really take over the hitters, and then having Andy Barquette, obviously the former hitting coach for the Red Sox, on staff. Those two guys just kind of um, really transformed our offensive room. Um, but then, you know, we had had a lot of you know the, last year was our first real recruiting class in terms of the freshmen that, you know, with the kids committing so early, um, you know, we really flipped the model where we, we had been very dominant transfer wise and um, either junior college or grad transfers and with very little freshmen just because all the kids were committed when, when we first got here and then kind of flipped the script where it was mostly freshmen. And so, you know, they had been, we had built relationships with them. We had recruited them for a reason. Um, and they came in and just were very, very hungry. Uh, just a, a very a huge culture change in the offensive room. Um, and so I think mixing that with with just how good we were on the mound, how, how great uh, you know Nick Gotti did with those guys and a couple of the transfers, but guys that had been in the program and you know um, Jeff Hakinson just really going from a walk on to probably the best closer in the country last year. I mean those kind of developments, which is what our program has been based on, just really put us in. And then obviously you know, you, you beat, um, we beat Tanner Burns on Friday night. And, you know, I think that just kind of got us going. Like that just kind of got the snowball going down the hill. And we just started playing with a lot of confidence. Obviously those next two games, we just were, we played really, really well. Um, and so then we just kind of just ran with it, had a lot of momentum, really had to start that belief or started that belief process. And um, so a great job by the coaching staff, but even better job by the players of really going out there. And we, we had a great game plans. We, we executed game plans. We never aborted uh, no matter what was going on. Um, and, and the players just, just played hard. And uh, good things happen when you believe in each other. And I think that we, we had a lot of belief just from the culture building all fall and everything. Just the kids cared and wanted to be good. Um, and, and you could see it. One area that – you know, you really can't deny the results there is on the pitching staff for you guys, a 217 ERA as the season came to an end. You know, good, good, uh, just depth and all around staff with Hackinson at the back end, a quality starting rotation. How do you now go about kind of parlaying that into the same or similar results in, in 2021 and keeping that ball rolling? Well, you got to stay with your development plan, stay with the things that we believe in. Um, um, and you bring in, you bring in players that, that we've got to make better. Uh, we've got guys that have a lot of experience. Um, you know, obviously bringing in two grad transfers this year with A.J. Jones from Jacksonville and, and Kenny Serwa from SIU Edwardsville, like two experienced guys that are older that, you know, hopefully we'll be able to, to step right in. Um, and you got to mix that with, you know, obviously Colton Gordon being back, but a guy like Zach Hunsaker and continuing that development process in the back end, you got Litchfield and 
Uh, you need Nolan Levkoski to be able to bounce back from the surgery and, and be the guy that we think he can be that he showed glimpses of in the fall of his freshman year. Um, but then you're going to have to have guys that continue to, to grow into some of the young guys and some of the guys that didn't, didn't play maybe a ton last year. And, um, but that's, that's what this program again has been, has been based on his development. And so uh, we just need to continue to do that. And hopefully those guys learn some things. Uh, the younger guys learn from guys like Hakinson and, and, and Holloway and, and whatnot. And, um, and we can continue to kind of grow. And, um, and again, they, they set the bar and we got to continue to try to not only, you know, meet those expectations, but try to raise the bar every single year and challenge our guys to, to find a way to do that. You know, again, we, I think offensively, hopefully the guys learned that, you know, you don't have to be old in order to be good. I mean, we played a lot of new players last year offensively and were really successful. Um, although that's great, it's not a, it's not a prerequisite to being good. Um, and so no matter whether you're a freshman, a transfer, um, or barely pitched last year, like push yourself to be better every single day and, and you have the ability to go out and, and help us win games. You mentioned the grad transfers there in Jones and, and Serwa. And I'm curious, you know, knowing that, you know, grad transfers are just transfers in general in college baseball, I think are going to continue to be a big part of, of building rosters across the country, especially if we, if we eventually live in a world where we have a, a one-time exception there with transfers. I'm curious how you and your staff go about evaluating transfers to fit in your program, because I imagine it's a little bit different than an evaluation for a high school kid or even a JUCO player, given you don't just have to think about how the player fits in to what you're trying to build on the roster from an athletic standpoint, but also you're bringing in largely just a fully grown adult, a 20, 21, 22 year old kid who you is a little more uh, fully formed than an 18 year old kid you're going to be bringing on campus. So I imagine it's a little bit of a, a fit evaluation from more than just a playing standpoint compared to a high school or a JUCO player. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think you're looking at a lot of different things. I mean, I think for us, it's always the, you know, not something that we're, we're planning on. Um, we want to bring in young kids. We want to develop them. We want to have them in our program for, for two, three, four years. I mean, that, that's the long-term plan. But at the end of the day, with the draft being the way it is and not, under, not knowing, um, you know, again, when you're, when you're committing these kids, it's so far away from the time that they show up on campus is, is you have a game plan, but it, it rarely ever goes the way you want it to, right, it, it, or the way it's planned. And so uh, you got to fill those gaps. And um, obviously a grad transfer can be a huge, a huge plus for the program because they have pitched at this level. And I think that no matter where you're at, whether you're a high school kid or a junior college kid, like you're always going to lack um, the, the D1 experience. And so bringing somebody in that has a D1 experience is a huge plus. But there's also – there's going to be some negatives to that. So you do have to do your homework. You do have to find – if it's somebody that's really going to fit in, you don't want somebody that's going to disrupt the culture. Uh, but it's also going to be somebody that believes in the same things that we do. As good as they have been at their previous places, like they still have to have uh, the desire and the want to be, to be coached. Um, and you have to see that. And so there, there's obviously a lot less ceiling, right? You're, 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 you're not going to see a ton of growth out of the kid. Um, but you understand you, you watch a lot of film and, and whatnot and, and make a lot of phone calls to, to see what their stuff is like and how they fit into what we're trying to do and, and what our program is about and, and do they fit in all those different type of prongs. Um, and you got to try to find the right guys to be able to do that. I mean, we've had guys that don't fit into it. We've had guys that do fit into it. And it's not just about having good numbers. I mean, Grant Shoreman was a huge, I mean, was our Friday night guy and, and pitched his tail off and had the best numbers of his career. Um, and so you're going to get some growth. You're going to have guys that buy in. So you're looking for things that you think that you can add to that person's repertoire in terms of maybe it's nutrition, maybe it's in the weight room, maybe it's in 
and just development in terms of um, the way that, that Coach Adi works with our pitchers and the different things that he does. Like, can we, can we add something to this guy and make him, make him slightly better, but he can bring that, that experience uh, of pitching at the D1 level and what that grind is like and, and, and how to be able to handle the ups and downs, the travel, the, um, the, the, obviously the competition. And, um, it's obviously a huge asset to have somebody with, that you can bring in that has that, that experience compared to a younger guy or, or a transfer that has never pitched at this level. When you look at the offensive side of the ball, you mentioned that you were a little younger last year. Um, what kind of growth did you see from, from them in the, the bit of the spring that you did get? And, and then, you know, anything that you've seen since uh, they, they went out over the summer? Yeah, I mean, it's just, a, again, I think that you saw guys in practice do really well. But, you know, again, when the lights come on, you know, it, it changes everything. Um, and you see your batting average up on the on the big screen, like it changes everything. And um, it just the pressure, it, it all it all upticks. And, and, you know, the best of the best are able to handle that and, and kind of uptick their game with it. And so I was really proud. I mean, again, Pablo Ruiz got off to a great start, really you know, plays so fast and uh, with a lot of emotion and uh, a lot of self-belief and just did a great Jeffrey Pena who had been in our program and had barely played just to see his growth process and again get off to the start that he did you know for the first time really getting like everyday starts at our program. Um, Matt Archer who you know we loved and and isn't the you know, isn't the uh, flashy, toolsy infielder, but is the guy that is the ultimate worker, the ultimate baseball IQ, uh, just to see the things that he did as a late change, as, you know, really hadn't practiced a ton at third base. We threw him in there the last week and, and just made some huge strides. I mean, Andrew Braid, who had missed the fall um, with a broken hand until like the last couple of weeks, and just to see his growth in a short amount of time, you know, we, we, we messed around just saying, man, if you hadn't broke your hand, like, just to see where he is today compared to where he was, you know, in January, just again, it's the development process, but you get around a bunch of, you get a bunch of good kids in a, in a room together that are really pushing each other. And I think that that's what the culture kind of made a huge change, especially in the offensive room was guys just pushing each other, had each other's backs. Tom Jostin, again, uh, redshirted Louisville, goes to a junior college, has success, comes in here and, and has some success. Um, but again, just needing the grind and how to, how to show up every day and prepare. Uh, what does your routine look like? And, and can you handle the ups and downs? So I just saw those guys really starting to learn what that was all about, learning how to have a game plan. That's going up there and swinging, uh, but having a game plan, understanding what the other team is trying to do and then being able to make adjustments fast, like whether it's in bat, in, in your at bat or, or, or bat to a bat or, or inning to inning or game to game. I just thought our coaching staff did a tremendous job of preparing those guys for that and our guys being able to execute and make adjustments on the fly. So offensively, we still we really started to grow. So it's exciting, though, to have, you know, pretty much 90% of your offense back, um, adding a few really, really special players. Um, and, you know, it, it's a good core group offensively. Um, and so it's exciting. You know, obviously, Ted, Ted, Ted and Andy be having them both back, just, again, having that, that – camaraderie and having that um that consistency of the voices in the in the cages hopefully will allow our guys to continue to grow because with the growth that we saw from from september to january and, and through march uh was extremely extremely uh, positive and 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 at a steep rate so hopefully you know the time off doesn't crush that we can kind of get right back where we're at and, and see that same that same accelerated growth here from now until till february again and um, we got we got a chance to have a special a special offensive group again.
obviously, you know, we don't, Teddy and I don't have to tell you that uh, we're living in interesting times in regards to college baseball and just the, the world at large. And that's made the fall a little bit of a, an interesting time. And I think we could ask 300 division one coaches how their fall looks and we'd get 300 different answers. So I, I guess we'll ask you, I mean, how, how has your fall been so far? How are you setting it up? Um, how does it look a little bit different from the falls you've been a part of throughout your entire career? Yeah, you know, it's, it's weird, you know, obviously, you know, football and all, all the fall sports trying to get them ready, you know, it was kind of waiting to figure out what we were going to be able to do. And really, we didn't have any idea. I mean, kids were asking me, you know, we started school on the August 24th or 26th, whatever that Monday was. And, you know, the week leading up and even that, like, I had very little guidance of, man, like, I don't know what our fall is going to look like. Like, I've been told that we are going to be able to do something, but I don't know. And, you know, obviously, as, as the as school started getting ready to start, we kind of flipped the model to trying to figure out what we were going to do. And, um, you know, it's somewhat normal in terms of the amount of work we're putting in these small groups, which is normal for this time for us. Um, you know, obviously, it's, there's a lot of restrictions in terms of wearing masks and one point of entry and, and you know, trying to keep the you know, no locker room. So trying to keep the kids um, busy, but at the same time, not making them sit around for an hour and a half. So trying to you know, instead of like, hey, we're going to we're going to lift at this time and they're going to go to school and then they're going to come back. All the classes are online. So really have open in terms of the hours, but trying to keep the kids busy when they're here. And then when they're done, they're done and they can they can get out of here so that there's not a lot of crossover or just a lot of sitting around um, and being able to, to one, be bored, but two, um, you know, just if, if they do end up coming across something that they're not, they're not sitting around giving it to everybody else. So uh, now, you know, for 20 years, it was always the same schedule for me, especially as a head coach the last, uh, the last seven years is, you know, we lift in the morning and they go to school after that until the early afternoon. And then they're at the field for, for, you know, we're all on the field for a couple hours, three, four hours a day, whether it's doing offense or defense or, or the pitchers. And you know, we've kind of flipped that script just because of class and the weather and the, and the lightning um, you know, just trying to make sure we got all the stuff in, but again, trying to set those groups up. So, you know, on the field every day at, at 830 with a group, you know, is different for me personally. Uh, but we're getting our work in, uh, you know, we hope to start team practice a month from today. Um, again, that's all if everything goes well. And, and that's obviously a big, big, you know, if, and I think that, you know, we talk in our program, we talk about the mental game so much and just worrying about today. And I think as a head coach, you know, I'm always trying to plan out, but really, to be honest with you, like the one difference I am is I am literally about today because I don't know what tomorrow brings. Like, just like, you know, I think we learned it. We played Miami on Wednesday night and Thursday, the season was over. If you had told me that that was going to be our last game, I would have never believed you. And I don't know when our last practice is going to be. Anything can change from here to there. So I really think that we're trying to get the coaching, the coaching staff and the players to really, to really focus on you know, today being the most important day of our season and let's get as good as we possibly can. We might get shut down tomorrow for a week, two weeks. We might not have a rest, you know what I mean? Like we just don't know. Um, and so, you know, obviously the plan is to be normal. And, uh, but obviously we have, until we get to team practice, we won't be cleared to have that many people on the field at one time. Um, and so we just got to continue to make good decisions in terms of what we do away from the field and how we go about our business in terms of washing hands and all that kind of stuff in hopes that we can do a normal fall in terms of team practice as we get to, you know, the middle of October. Um, but as for now, it seems as normal as probably it can be. Um, just a lot of differences in terms of masks and hand washing and, and stuff like that. But in terms of the amount of work we're putting in, it's, it's been fairly normal. As you get in deeper into it and, and start looking at team stuff, um, 
you know, we're at a, a point where it's been six months since you played that game against Miami. And, you know, I know some guys went out and played summer ball. Some guys didn't. Um, some guys played more competitive summer ball than others. And so, you know, everyone's kind of coming into this in a different place. How do you go about evaluating um, and, and just, you know, watching your team and, and trying to make decisions and, and come to conclusions given the, you know, the wide array of, of what, what guys have done for the last six months. Yeah. I mean, I think our staff did a great job of just keeping in great communication with our guys to know where they were at and, and really helping them have a game plan on, on what, where they needed to be when they, when they, when they did come back, but just the open and constant communication of, you know, obviously following guys who are playing summer ball, but if you, if they weren't like just giving them a, a plan and an idea of what, what they needed to do and where they needed to be uh, when they came back so that we kind of, had a good understanding and, and we could really hit the ground running. And I think that was the big, the big message all summer was like, we've got a lot to catch up on. Like no matter what we're doing, whether it's summer ball or not, like we, we need to, we need to make, make progress and we need to be ready to go. We can't have any wasted days. And again, the same thing was that we had an understanding of, we never know what it's going to be like. And so whether that's, we get to do stuff for a month and then we're going to get shut down, like we better make it an important month. So we can't, we can't ease into it in terms of, Oh well, well, we'll take it slow for the first month and really get you guys back in shape. Like we couldn't, we couldn't risk that. We had to have them ready to go from from the onset. So we did a great job of communicating. The staff was tremendous, just making sure they stayed in contact and and making sure guys were were doing what they needed to do and keep them holding them accountable and and just having you know weekly conversations with them on how summer ball was going and how they were feeling and um, and things like that. And um, and then again, I think we you know we we didn't go full full go on the first day, but I mean, we also were, were, we were, we were back at work and we weren't, we weren't going to ease our way into it in terms of giving them weeks at a time to really get back into it. We felt like they were at a good starting point um, from all different levels. So, um, but at the end of the day, like you can only go on what you got. So you, you're going to have to make a, a judgments and do all that kind of stuff. And, but again, I don't feel like it's any different than any fall. I mean, we feel like we want to open up competition. Nobody is guaranteed a job here. Um, you know, we're going to give everybody an opportunity, whether that's they were barely played last year or they're new to the program, like they get the same opportunity. And so we just got to be able to, to do what we can and hope to get a, a team portion in here where we get to see guys on the mound and uh, really, really push them to to get better, but also to for us as a staff to see where we're at, see where each individual is at and how do we get them better and, and how do we form, you know, a game plan and lineup come come February. You got a finance degree during your, your days as a student at Miami, and I'm curious first if, if you ever considered at any point in time uh, taking that and, and entering that field, and then, then secondarily how, if there, if there are any ways in which your degree and, and this, the schoolwork you went through at Miami has kind of helped color who you are as a coach and how you approach the job. Yeah, well, I mean, so I graduated on like first week in May, and, and we won the national championship like June 20-something. So, I mean, I had seven weeks where I was interviewing for every financial institution that you can imagine, like uh, anywhere from insurance to financial planning. Like I was interviewing it's suit and tie three times a week, probably for, you know, first interviews, second interviews. I even had a couple third interviews, um, you know, and then kind of obviously we got into the regional play, like shut all that down and said, I'll figure it out, you know, but I really had job opportunities doing all that. And then, you know, the Marlins called, uh, the day after the World Series, I ended up signing. 
um, and playing pro ball. And, and at that point kind of was really unsure what I wanted to do. I had talked about going back to get my MBA. I had talked about obviously taking one of these job opportunities. Uh, but it all, I actually interviewed to be the, uh, an algebra teacher and the, and the head baseball coach in my high school at, at 23 years old. Um, so I had a lot of kind of irons in the fire per se. And, but at the end of the day, like I just love the game. And, and then obviously when, when Mark Kingston left Miami to go take the job at Tulane um, to be their recruiting coordinator, you know, I, I called coach Morris and we talked about coming back to coach and, um, and, you know, still then thought maybe I'd go back and get my MBA while I was coaching and kind of use that as a two year, you know, kind of trial period or whatnot. But once I kind of, I mean, the first day of practice and, and just kind of being on the field and, and working with guys and, you know, you just kind of you get that bug, man. And it was really, really tough to get away from it. And just really, you know, I didn't feel like I could just be half in. So I just said, you know what, like, I'm just going to go all in and do this. I always have my degree to fall back on if I needed to, but I'm going to really push ahead and, and really love being around the game still and helping. And, you know, I got to chase my dreams and, and my dream was to win a national championship in Miami. And I got to do that. I got to live it. Um, and that was because of a lot of different people from Turtle Thomas to Laser Criazzo to, to Coach Morris to Gino to King. Like um, I got to live that dream. So I, I just kind of finally wanted to pay it back and, and be able to help others do the same thing. So, uh, just kind of really bought into that and, and really wanted to help and get to be able to compete still, you know, and didn't really want to, you know, play old man baseball, you know, or beer league softball or, or you know, I was, I mean, I was a big tennis player. I didn't want to go play in some men's tennis league and not be my competitive, you know, my competitive fix for, for my life. So being able to do this kind of got me to, to kind of answer a lot of those questions in terms of being able to give back and help others. And, and at the same time, um, you know, hopefully, provide this world with better people going forward and, and the, the next generation of leaders and, and whatnot. So, um, but obviously my degree especially has helped a lot lately with budget stuff. Um, that's for sure. But obviously my whole, everything that I've learned, you know, really the foundation of who I am has, has really come from Miami and, and what I learned there from, from that coaching staff and those people that really set me on my way and, and gave me the opportunity. I, I wasn't a very good high school player and, and I, I wasn't, uh, I was a slightly better college player than I was a high school player, but the people believed in me and gave me opportunities like that really set a foundation for who I am and, and what I, what I've become as a coach. And um, Obviously Rob Cooper was a huge part of that really changed kind of my perspective on coaching. Um, but the, still the foundation of what I do and who I am is, is from what I learned um, at the university of Miami with those guys. And so I feel like it's a huge part of who I am. It's a huge part of, of how I coach. Um, in the fabric of, of the competitiveness and wanting to go to, to Omaha and win a national championship, I learned all that as a kid, um, watching Coach Frazier and then watching Coach Morris take it over and watching all my favorite players, Charles Johnson and all those guys, um, just instilled in me an, a, a desire to want to be, you know, to me in Rosenblatt Stadium. Um, but obviously now changing that, but just wanting to be in Omaha and being around that community for those two weeks is a special thing. And I've learned that from a real early age. You mentioned there what playing for Jim Morris meant and, and how much he and the rest of your coaches at Miami were able to do for you. What, what are your favorite memories of Jim Morris, either, either when you were playing him or playing against him or, or coaching under him? I mean, one, I think just the, you know, it was very, um, very consistent with his emotions. I mean, I think he never really showed emotion as a coach. Um, was able to just kind of keep a le uh, even, even keel, which I think in the dugout, 
allowed us. I mean, always felt like we had a chance to win. We always felt like there was going to be mark-like magic. And whether we were down five runs in the ninth, we always felt like we were going to come back and win. I think that starts from the top of having that belief and never panicking. And um, But instilling us the work ethic and and whatnot. Um, you know, just the way he ran his bullpen was, was key to me. I mean, just to be able to have guys in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning and really believe in those guys, take a lot of pressure off the starting uh, rotation and just, you know, give us five, six innings, you know what I mean, of great baseball. You don't need to save anything in the tank to have to do it yourself. You knew you had guys at the back end. I mean, obviously, Miami's been so blessed with such great closers um, from the, from Rick Rather all the way, all the way through, you know, you know, the guys, you know, the George who gets and the Mike news, like all those guys um, were special, but I mean, we had plenty of bullpen guys like Luke DeBold and, and Andrew Cohn. And, um, and, and, you know, it was just always that the setup guy became the closer, the, the Graves, the, the Danny Graves, those guys just embraced their roles and then just moved into the closers role when guys, when guys, um, you know, got drafted. And so um, I've always, held that kind of close and, and run my bullpen the same and just stayed away from complete games and uh, just trying to save guys for the postseason, make sure that they they had enough gas in the tank to do that. But at the same time, trying to take the pressure off them, just let them go out there and throw as many innings as you got and just kind of pretend like you're going to throw one inning and then, and then go throw a second. And when you get tired, like we got guys behind you. And so, but that takes a lot of development and building a staff. And, um, you know, you gotta, you gotta do a great job recruiting and coaching and developing, but, I think that was always one of the things that has stuck with me is how he, how he controlled his emotions and how he ran a bullpen. Um, and again, I think Miami was a very player-driven program. I mean, we were all very driven to be good. Like, uh, we didn't need a lot of motivation. And, um, but at the same time, we had a lot of, of, of freedoms. A lot of freedoms. I mean, it's a tough place to have a lot of freedoms, but we were able to manage it as, as kids. And um, we were trusted and, and to go out there and do our jobs. And, and, and again, as a coach, I think now I'm, I'm very standoffish in terms of my, letting my assistants do their jobs. Like, you know, when I took that job as a 23-year-old, Coach Morris never showed up to catcher practice and hitting and watched what I was doing to make sure that I knew, knew what I was doing. Like, he hired me for a reason. He trusted me. Um, he showed that trust in me and that belief in me as a coach and let me go do my thing and never questioned or, or you know, again, was over my shoulder. And so it was the same thing now. Like, I – I've given the again. I think Rob Cooper was the same way when I got the recruiting coordinator job with zero recruiting experience. He didn't. He didn't do all the recruiting and hold my hand like he. I remember the first day at the office at Wright State. Like he called. I, I went into his office like, all right, like what's our plan recruiting? Like what do you want me to do? And he he kind of just chuckled at me and said, do you know what a good player looks like? And I was like, yeah. He's like, go find a bunch of those. Like and and just let me go be my go do my thing and, and really learn on the fly but at the same time just showing the trust in me so you know I think as a head coach now that that is instilled in me from coach Morris I'm very grateful for that because I think I'm the coach I am today because of that uh, that I've I, I allow that for my assistants like I don't look over their shoulder like I go out and watch stuff just to be around the hitters and, and the pitchers and to see what they're doing but I don't question anything I'm not, I'm not there every 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 minute asking hey what are we doing what's the game plan today what are you doing today what's going on What'd you do last night recruiting? Who'd you talk? I, I just kind of let them do their jobs, trust what they're doing. I'm, I'm here for them for help when they need it. Um, I'm around to build a relationship with the players. Um, but really that's about it. I let them, I let them do their jobs. And I think that's a, a big thing of, of, of why I've been successful as a head coach. Cause I put a lot of trust in really good assistants and done a really good job of hiring them. Um, but I, I learned that from, from coach Morris and, 
what his assistants were, who he hired, and then what he let us do. So we, we've covered a, a lot of ground here, uh, you know, on some, some hard-hitting baseball topics, but we'll get to the most important question here, and it's just a simple one, Coach. Uh, please describe your favorite sandwich. <laughs> oh, man, that's, that is <laughs> that's tough, that right? out of left that's field a tough, for That's sure. the toughest question that, that you're going right, to yeah. get asked. No doubt. I'm definitely not prepared for my t- uh, the best sandwich. Um, I mean, I go with a Cuban, you know what I mean? Like just growing up in Miami. Like sure, that's, yeah. That's what I ate all the time. Um, whether I was working or, or whatnot, that was always around. So I'm, I'm, never, I'm never upset when somebody puts out Cuban sandwiches or if there's a Cuban sandwich on a menu, like I'm ordering it um, no matter where I'm at. Um, just because that's what I've, I've kind of grown accustomed to even down in South Florida. Do you miss like being down in, in South Florida? Is there any other food items you miss like the croquetas or something like that? You know, I don't know what you can get in Orlando versus having to be in, yeah, in South Florida. Know, but I'm, I, I mean, I stop at every Pollo Tropical to get plantains, uh, but there is no plantains like from a Cuban restaurant. Um, so, I mean, just real Cuban food. Like that's definitely, I mean, to get a, a palomilla or, or rice and beans and, um, and plantains, like, you know, you just, you don't see that a lot. So if I see a Cuban restaurant that I, that I and there's a guy here that, that owns a Cuban restaurant that's a, it's a part of our, uh, you know, use of, you know, it's a big part of UCF football and, and athletics and whatnot. And he owns one. So he'll, he'll always, it's kind of far away, but like if, if he wants to hang out, like we'll go over there and, and eat there to get actual real Cuban food. But um, in Miami that they're on every corner. Um, so you could go to any, Latin American cafe or La Careta and, and, and you could get some really real, real Cuban food. And, um, you know, Poyo's as close as you can get, Poyo Tropicals is as close as you can get, but um, it's not the same as, as, as South Florida real Cuban restaurant food. That is one of the biggest advantages to being in South Florida, I think, is just access to, to not only Cuban food, but to all sorts of, you know, Latin American, Caribbean food. Uh, just outstanding stuff. I, I love anytime I'm down there, you know, getting, getting some of that. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the coolest things about Miami, just a melting pot of people and, and cultures and food. Like you, you can learn a lot about life um, and a lot about countries and what their, what their cultures are and what their food, how it tastes and get to see different things, taste different things, which is pretty cool. So um, it's awesome. I'm, I'm blessed to growing up there and been able to be culture that way. Absolutely. Well, Coach, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us here on the Baseball America College podcast. Talk a little baseball, talk a little Cuban food. Uh, it's, all, it's all a great time, and we're going to be looking forward to seeing uh, UCF out, out on the field, hopefully, uh, hopefully as soon as we can this spring. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm excited, and let's hope that uh, everything goes smooth from here on out. Thanks again to UCF coach Greg Lovelady for joining us here on the Baseball America College podcast. And now, Joe, you've got another word from our sponsors. Yeah, it's summertime. And at my bookie, that can only mean one thing. It's winning season. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. Winning season means free bets, super contests, survivor, and more. At my bookie, winning season is all about your chance to win big. Bet NBA playoffs, NHL playoffs, Major League Baseball, UFC, and then some. The craziest sports summer of your lifetime is here. It's simple. Make your picks, win big, collect your cash. Invest in your intuition. Select from hundreds of future bets, or you can bet games in real time with MyBookie's live betting. Put that big brain of yours to good use. 
Use promo code BASEBALLAMERICA, all one word, BASEBALLAMERICA, and double your first deposit. New players get up to $1,000 in free play, designed to add more excitement to the sports you love and the games you bet. Thousands of cross-sport wagers, props, and parlays await. Sign up now to bet with the best and celebrate your victory. Your winning season begins today only at MyBookie. All right, Joe. So we uh, we heard there from Coach Lovelady. Um, UCF had climbed pretty significantly in our top 25 this spring, going from unranked up to, I think it was 12th. They really should have that in front of me. Um, and, you know, they uh, they had that big, loud sweep of Auburn, but they also had won a nice series against Cal State Northridge and our old friend Dave Serrano. Um, they done they they'd run out to this this 15 and 3 record and and were definitely looking like the the top team in the american and i mean it was early we weren't really like focused on you know the hosting race yet but i think it's fair to say they were probably trending towards getting into that i mean their rpi finishes at 22 for what that's worth and it's not worth a ton uh but you know, if they had run off in the American, you know, we've seen East Carolina host uh, winning that conference before. And, and there's no reason to think that if UCF had done something similar, if they were able to keep it up, that they wouldn't have been in that race. So Arrow was trending up in a big way. And uh, it, it really is unfortunate that for them that the, the season got canceled and, and we were not able to see it play out. But from what we did see, that that was an exciting team. Uh, that that was that was making a lot of noise, and then you look at what they're bringing back, what they added this year. Uh, they have a recruiting class coming in that I ranked just outside the top 25. They added a couple grad transfers that Coach Lovelady talked about, and you know it's uh, it's the makings of a of another solid Knights team as we look towards 2021. Yeah, it, it makes me wonder, especially as we were talking to him, it, it kind of makes me wonder if I've been underrating just personally what UCF can be in 2021 and maybe that's a little bit because you you just kind of assume that a program like UCF that we're not used to seeing in the rankings and and certainly not off to the kind of starts that we're not used to seeing them get the kind of start that they got in 2020 I just wonder if some of that is just kind of assuming well you know we can't do that That, that's not a normal thing so that's going to be hard to replicate And, and I think there is some truth to that um you know, I think it's just going to be, we don't know what 2021 is going to hold, right? We've talked about that a lot and things were really coming together for them from the standpoint of they were, they were hot, they were playing well, they got that sweep of Auburn and I don't know what their 2021 schedule looks like, but it may not have a chance as big as Auburn. And heck, if they play that series again, there's just as much of a chance Auburn sweeps it because Auburn's talented and it's an SEC program and stuff happens. And so they were really in a great position that things would have to go really, really well again in 2021 for the team to be back in that same position. And that could happen. And I think that's what I've been under, perhaps underestimating is just how talented this group is and, and how experienced they're going to be coming back together. But you also, I think, have to take that with a dose of, of realism that, you know, that, that 2020 start might just have been the best case scenario and that in 2021 it might be hard to have that happen might be difficult to replicate that again. So we'll have to, um, you know, we'll have to see, but I I think you're right in that 
you said that by the time the season ended, they looked like the favorite in the American. And, and I, I tended to agree with you. And I think my, my mindset on that had just kind of shifted right as the season ended. And, and I guess, you know, a sweep of Auburn will do that for you. But, you know, I saw East Carolina next to last weekend and I liked a lot of the things I saw. Uh, you know, everyone knows I'm a big Alec Burleson fan. I really enjoyed what he brought to the table. And, but I think East Carolina was still figuring a lot of stuff out. And I, I looked at, at the lineup and I was, you know, outside of Burleson and then maybe Bryson Morrill, who has did some nice things. Like I was like, I don't, you know, who are the guys you're afraid of in this lineup? And, you know, they were still kind of working things out in the weekend rotation and they had some younger pitchers and some big bullpen roles. And I, you know, you look at the schedule and UCF and East Carolina was the first weekend of American play. And I think that was probably good news for UCF to get East Carolina relatively early, maybe before some of those younger players had really settled in their roles and it kind of found their stride. And um, that really could have a series win there really could have opened the door for UCF to, to really run through the American and, and perhaps be a host team. So things were really kind of, uh, as they would say in the, uh, in the Simpsons, everything was coming up UCF. Uh, it's a Simpsons reference there for you, but uh, you know, I, I am excited to see what they have in 2021. And, and I, I hope they get a chance to do something similar next season. I just am a little bit afraid that, lightning kind of struck in 2020 and that you're always you're, you're probably often going to go broke waiting on lightning to strike twice which isn't to say they can't be a regional team I think we expect them to be that but maybe it's just a situation where the particular set of factors came together in 2020 and, and betting on that to happen again in 2021 might be foolhardy so I just went and pulled up our never too early top 25 which we now have not updated in about two months once the, the draft signing deadline passed, uh, we have not, is that when we updated? It's only been six weeks, whatever. We haven't updated it since, since the sometime this summer. And number 25 we have as UC Santa Barbara. I still feel pretty good about the shows. They bring back pretty much everything. Um, you know, we've got Miami in there. Miami has the newly minted number one recruiting class coming in, lost a fair amount, has some big bats in the lineup, got Arizona State at 23, well-documented what they lost, but also we're well aware of what they have coming in. Um, you got Pepperdine at 20. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know that UCF doesn't belong somewhere in those last five teams. I would certainly say that they're somewhere within the top 30 uh, if we extended it a little bit. So, you know, they're right there in the mix. And, you know, are, are they going to, you know, go on another run that, that has them in a hosting capacity? I don't know. I know when we updated it, I didn't feel great about not having an American team in. UCF would be my American favorite right now as it stands. But, uh, you know, Tulane is very good as well. Uh, they're they're kind of you know in that in that ed you know periphery of the the top 25 east carolina under cliff godwin is never going to be far off if they're not in uh you know and i'm interested to see what houston has there's a lot of turnover there but uh you know again under todd Whitting, we expect houston to be kind of in that mix so if ucf is coming out at the top of that conference that means they're going to be good uh and you know that they're top 25 worthy right now it's crowded back there uh, because everyone can point to a lot of guys coming back. Uh, they can point to a, a, a robust addition 
um, whether we're talking true recruiting class or whether we're talking transfers or both, you know, so it, it, it's tough to, to narrow it down at the end, but you know, I, I think it's fair to say that if we put UCF in, uh, I wouldn't feel bad about it at all. And you know, I, I do expect to see them ranked at, at some point during the spring. I think that's right. I, I totally agree there. I think I have a couple thoughts and we'll have plenty of time to, to really break down the American as we get closer to the actual season. But two quick thoughts there is that one you mentioned, the teams, uh, I think everyone to some degree feels like they're loaded, but I think the American is probably uniquely positioned to feel uh, especially so because I think they're sitting in the sweet spot of they don't really have teams in that conference who got completely uh, gutted by the draft in the way that you still saw in a couple of instances among major conference teams, teams that lost, you know, teams like Arizona state and Miami, for example, that just, that felt like a typical draft year for those programs. And, but on the other hand, the American has a lot of really, really talented players that are going to be pros. They just weren't either, they were either too young or they just weren't top five round drafts uh, for this specific year. And so I think the American probably sits in that sweet spot where they've got a lot of teams who are probably feeling really, really good about where they are with good reason. And maybe that's a group of teams that's prepared to maybe punch above their weight a little bit. And I think what we're going to see is maybe the opposite of what we saw two years ago, where in 2019, East Carolina was far and away so much better than everyone else in that conference. And it showed in the standings. And then maybe that was to the detriment of the league as a whole, trying to, trying to move forward. I think maybe 2021 is a year where it's the opposite of that, where, you know, you look up and you've got, it's back to one of those seasons in the American where there's five teams with legitimate claim to being at large teams and maybe, you know, just three or four get in, but it's hotly uh, contested there in the middle of the conference. I think that's, I think that's the likelier scenario in 2021, just given all the teams that I feel pretty good about in the American from where we sit now. Yeah. I mean, is there any team in the American that you don't feel good about right now? I mean, cause we had Eric Wedge on a month ago or so and uh, Wichita, as we talked about then was on this incredible hot streak as, as the season was ending. Uh, we didn't get to see Wichita against premium competition, like UCF got to play Auburn. Uh, but they were playing really well. Uh, Arrow seems like they're up there. Memphis has Hunter Goodman, who is a potential first-round pick. And obviously, it's going to take more than that. But uh, you know, it's not every day that Memphis has that kind of player. So if uh, if he can carry a significant load offensively, that's that's big-time news for them. I feel really good about Cincinnati generally under Scott Guggins. Uh, you know, much like I've said about some of these other programs. Uh, you know, I, under under Scott Coogan's, I expect Cincinnati to consistently be good and you know, you know, compete at the top of the conference. Whether that means just being competitive or actually being at the top of the conference, but you know, that's a team that made the 2019 tournament, winning the American, upset Oregon State and Corvallis. You know, that's what that program can be capable of. And you know, I USF right now is more of a mystery to me, but I. You know, it's it's USF. There's talent there. I, I think Billy Mole is, uh, you know, ha, has has talent at his disposal, and I, I, you've got to believe that that they're in a position to to take a step forward, given where where they had been. So I don't know. It's a it's a tough conference the the way you look at it, and and I think that you're right, Joe. That 
they kind of sit at this nexus of having really good talent, not having been rated by transfers, uh, and also not having lost a ton of draft guys because they they operated just under the the radar that if that draft had been 10 rounds, maybe maybe more of them get picked. But in a five-round draft, uh, you know, Burleson went, Jeff Hackinson went, um, you know, some guys like that went, but you also had some big time guys coming back to the conference. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I, I think every team in the conference for the most part, you, you know, you have to feel good about the 2021 team. And if maybe you're not so sure about the 2021 team, you feel good about the general direction. Cause it, it does remain to be seen what Wichita state is in a full season or, you know, even Cincinnati to a certain degree coming off of being in a regional a couple of years ago. But I think those programs in particular, which are, are two of the programs that, I mean, let's, let's just say what it is and that have, have been two of the programs that have, have struggled in the, in the American to consistently, compete and I guess Wichita hasn't been in the league but a few years but that has been true of their time in the American so far but I think those two programs have to feel really good about their general direction at this point given what they've accomplished and so I think every team in the American's got something to feel pretty good about which I think is a good place to be as a conference moving forward. Yeah absolutely um you know so we mentioned some transfers we mentioned that with with Coach Love um Joe, this week's top 25 was the top 25 impact transfers, kind of the culmination of the project you had been working on throughout the summer, which was to track the the impact players that, that were on the move this summer uh, from a four-year transfer perspective. Uh, UCF brings in one guy off of that list, and frankly, A.J. Jones, who didn't make the list, could have made the list. Uh, I'm not saying that he should have, like, at the back end. There, there, there are a lot of uh, a lot of guys who who could you know be in those last five spots or so, and uh, you know so they got two nice arms that that we we heard about, and uh, you know we we put together that that list of, of the top twenty five, and, and number one is Mike Antico moving from St. John's to Texas, where uh, you know the Longhorns are, are very excited to have him, expect him to to step right into their lineup, and overall it, it's a pretty impressive group of players that were on the move this summer. We knew there was going to be a robust transfer market for a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, you had everyone having this extra year of eligibility. You had some teams and some conferences not bringing seniors back. And, and then you also just had general uncertainty around roster sizes, playing time, and some players wanting to move closer to home, uh, you know, for whatever reason or, that there was just going to be a lot of movement and there was, and uh, you know, even without the one-time transfer exemption being passed in the spring, we, we still expect a lot of these players to be able to make an impact on that 2021 season. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, w- one thing that struck me is how much of this list as I scroll through it, how much of this list would not have been, in a position to transfer had we not had the, the shortened 2020 season, because so much of the top of this list in particular are guys who were at good programs or had, you know, kind of were well-established at their programs and in a normal 2020 season would have just ridden out their eligibility. You know, a guy like Mike Antico, for example, I mean, he's at a good program in St. John's has played in postseason games is a, is a big part of that program is well thought of is, you know, probably going to get a shot to play pro baseball in some form once he finishes and, um, but, you know, given the opportunity of the extra year and finishing up a degree, like 
it just creates that kind of opportunity. But I think you have to go on this list down to, I guess, Will Proctor at eight and then Aubrey Major at nine to find guys who weren't just obvious, you know, grad transfer, you know, four years finished playing a fifth year somewhere else. The, the top seven guys in this list are guys who in a normal 2020 finished their careers and then that's all she wrote. Um, so it just, that kind of hammers home just how much extra movement we saw in the transfer portal this year and, and understanding of course that we don't have the a and b we don't know what the transfer portal would have looked like in a normal year when the 2020 season gets played but i think we have to assume that given that it was not played to its full extent that, that the transfer portal is a little more jam-packed not just with with sheer volume but also quality and, and i think you can see that in this top 25 list and I, you know, I tried to, as I was kind of putting some of these guys on this list, thinking about fit. And I think near the top of the list, you've got a good mix of talent and fit in a lot of cases. I think Mike Antico is a great example of that. I mean, he's a, the numbers are there, the talent is there, but also, you know, Texas lost Duke Ellis uh, signing as a free agent. Well, here's Mike Antico, slide him right in. You know, Connor Davis is not going to be Spencer Torkelson, but he's a really productive first baseman. Slide him right in the lineup. Brett Centracchio, you're not really sure where power in the Tar Heels lineup is going to come from with Sabato and Dylan Harris gone. Here's Brett Centracchio. So there's a lot, I think there's a lot of good fits high up on this list. And, you know, a couple names that, that I think are interesting to me, either from a fit or just from a talent standpoint that, that folks might not know quite as much about. One is Scott Dubrell, who is number five in this list, Jacksonville to Mississippi State. I think for one, he's a good fit because Justin Foscue has moved on. So he's a ready-made replacement if they want to go that route. I also kind of compare him a little bit to Trevor Ezel. And I, I you know, wrote the capsule for him in the top 25 and, and mentioned this. But you know, Trevor Ezel was a guy who went from Southeast Missouri State to Arkansas as an offensive-minded second baseman, which is what Scott Dubrule is. And you know, there was some question about, is he going to hit at Arkansas at the same level? And what do we do with him defensively? And then he gets to Arkansas, and he plays a lot of first base, as it turns out. So they figured out what to do with him defensively. And the guy just continued to hit. And he was a big part of an Arkansas team that went to Omaha in 2019. And Scott Dubrow still has to do that. But he's done nothing but hit in his career at Jacksonville. And, and I just get a feeling that he's going to be a similar type of guy where, you know, I don't know what they do with him. Maybe they just slot him into second base, and that's all she wrote. And he plays second base all year. But regardless of what they do, I'm, I'm pretty confident in his ability to, in his ability to hit. Um, one of the others um, is Luke Taggart, who, you know, I, I you know, had, he's a productive guy at Incarnate Word, but it's one of the guys who, you know, some of the reports you get on him are better than even his numbers suggest they would be. He's been described as a pitchability guy whose stuff is, is just a tick better than your average pitchability guy. You know, he, he walks two batters this summer on a really, really talented Santa Barbara Foresters team. Uh, and you know, the, the reports from, from their coach, Bill Pintard, were really, really positive about him. He's, you know, uh, like I said, was a productive guy at Incarnate Word, but you can't help but feel like there's maybe a little bit more in there. And I, I'm really curious to see, he gets to Oklahoma on an Oklahoma staff that's going to need some guys to step into, into new roles, given what they lost to the draft. And it would not surprise me to see him really make a leap uh, on an Oklahoma team that, you know, they, they know pitching around there. Skip Johnson obviously knows a, a thing or two about developing pitchers. So he's a guy I'm fascinated to see what what becomes of, of his season at Oklahoma because I think you look at his numbers and you're kind of maybe a little nonplussed. I mean, he's a, he's a big guy, a strong guy with, with pretty good stuff, and his strikeout numbers really don't necessarily blow you away. And, I mean, that's not the only metric necessarily, but that's one of the ones you look at. But he's 
he's not necessarily that guy as a pitcher. So I'm just fascinated to see what becomes of it, but I think he's going to have a big role for the Sooners in 2021. I, I think that that's the kind of guy that, you know, you heard Love Lady talk about what they look for when they're looking at a transfer. And, you know, he talked about just like, maybe they have something that they can teach him that they're particularly good at developing at, or they can unlock some little part of his game. And, you know, like you said, Skip Johnson knows pitching. They're, they're probably seeing something that, okay, maybe we can teach him this, or maybe we can clean this up and then that will help him do this other thing. And, you know, I, I think that that's a, a prime candidate for something like that to happen. And if they are able to, to help him unlock something, I mean, that's a, that becomes a really big pickup for the Sooners because as we talked about when Skip was on the podcast, like they're, they kind of have to do a lot to rebuild the, the pitching staff, given that the entire rotation was drafted, that things are just going to be different in Norman this year and that roles are up for grabs, innings are up for grabs. And so uh, bringing in a guy like that, can help. I'm also very interested by Austin Smith going from Southwestern, a division three school, Texas to Arizona. Uh, again, you know, that's a guy that, uh, you know, you, you hear that and, and you might say like, well, you know, how many division three transfers really make a difference? I mean, they happen certainly, but Austin Smith ranked on the BA 500 this year. So there is stuff. And then you get him with Nate Yeski. And I'm very interested to see what becomes of that. So that's, uh, that's another one that I'm tracking. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, Arizona has innings available if, uh, if you're ready to take them. So that interested to see what, what kind of uh, role they put him in and, and what Austin Smith is able to do out in Tucson. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a fascinating one as well. I think just generally, uh, the most fascinating ones to me are, and it's a lot of what makes up this list, but the most fascinating ones to me are always guy who's put up numbers at a lower level and now they're going to get thrust into a big, a bigger spotlight. And what do they, what do they do with it? So those are the, those are kind of the fascinating ones for me every year. And I don't think there's anything more, uh, a bigger example of that than a guy going from a, a division three school to becoming a member of a team that has uh, Omaha aspirations. Yeah, and you know he's not the only one. When Danny Hall was here, he was talking about uh, them picking up a Division three transfer. UVA picked up a D3 transfer a year ago. Um, Kentucky has a D3 transfer, maybe slightly less Omaha aspirations at Kentucky, given that it's never happened in Virginia and Arizona, which played for or which won national titles within the last decade. But, um, you know, it, there, are, there are some intriguing transfers like that out there. Uh, to to be had and you know our eyes are definitely going to be caught the most by by the big one you know big name guys moving uh, like a Mickey Antico but you know some of these small school players is uh, you know there's there's real value to be had there as well and um, you know they uh, sometimes they they make big impacts so something to watch here uh, as as we move into it Joe who that didn't make the top twenty five uh, kind of stood out to you? Because like I mentioned, you know, with AJ Jones, there are plenty of guys out there that, that have, you know, significant uh, potential to, to significant impact potential beyond the 25 that, that we put out there today. Yeah, there's, I mean, 
yeah, it's one of those things where I had to kind of cut myself off because once I name just a handful of names, I'll name eight and then it'll become 12 and then I'm just reading a list. But Holt Jones is one that I originally, I kind of vouched for in the top 25. He ended up getting bumped. So he's, he's definitely in that group right outside the top 25. But like a hard-throwing guy at Clemson, big, tall pitcher at Clemson going to Kentucky. Uh, Kentucky played a lot in the transfer market with pitchers this offseason. So it's going to be interesting to see what kind of roles those guys hold. But you know, I'm always going to kind of be attracted to a guy that has that type of stuff and the pedigree that would allow him to start off at a place like Clemson, you know, uh, baseball power, big expectations, and then going to another, you know, high level program in Kentucky, uh, because you know that there, there was obviously an evaluation there at some point that he was able to, to handle that, that level. And he's been productive in, in his time at Clemson too, to a certain degree. So it's not like he's a complete unknown there, but this is not taking a bet on a guy who, you know, was maybe undervalued in recruiting and then maybe he showed a little something. This is a guy who's, who's been a known quantity throughout his entire career. So he's one guy. The other guy that's, that's just fascinating is Nolan Crisp, who a lot of people might remember as a closer for Florida for a lot of the season two years ago, got off to a really hot start, was an early enrollee guy, was, you know, young to be a freshman. And then it, it just didn't quite play out the way he would have wanted. The numbers ended up being kind of ugly by the time the season was done. And then, and he didn't really see any time or any time at all in, in 2020. So it's hard to know exactly what to make there, but he's headed to Georgia. And so he's going to get another shot in a, in a, in a big spot, assuming he, he's able to carve out a role there. So that's one where you could convince me of, of almost anything about how that one in particular is going to play out. Yeah, I saw him pitch in Jupiter like right before he enrolled at Florida. And I thought he was going to be so good for the Gators. And it, it didn't like he went right into the closers role. And like Joe said, it, it just didn't quite pan out. So very interested to see what he does as he returns to, to his home state there in Georgia. Um, yeah, so transfers are a, a big part of what teams did this summer. And I think we think that they're going to become even bigger if the the one-time transfer exemption is passed as ex- as expected in January. We'll see what becomes of that. But obviously something we're going to be talking about more here on the podcast uh, over the, the next year as those new rules get um, sorted out, finalized, and then we, we get to see what it's all like um, if we're back to a Wild West situation where um, some some programs are almost you know scouting summer leagues looking for transfers, or if uh, they set up the rules in a way that kind of makes you declare whether you want to transfer within a certain amount of time after the season. I think that's one thing that a lot of coaches would like to see. Uh, you know, just helps them from a roster planning perspective. Um, you know, if you had to declare that you were going to transfer within. Uh, you know, 15, 30, however many days of, of the end of the season, that would prevent going to the Cape um, and blowing up and then deciding that you want to transfer, for instance. So uh, again, we'll, we'll be tracking this as, uh, as that legislation uh, progresses over the next few months. We did want to talk about the idea of an all-inclusive NCAA tournament, an idea that was first floated by ACC basketball coaches who unanimously uh, voted in one of their meetings to propose it for men's basketball. Uh, news broke of that last week, and as soon as it happened, I was like, well, what would that look like for baseball? 
because that's how my mind works. And so then I, uh, I, w- I went through the, the process of putting the puzzle together. And so the upshot is that there are 302 Division I teams in baseball in 2021. Uh, seven of them are reclassifying from Division II and therefore ineligible for the postseason. Uh, another, Stephen F. Austin, is ineligible due to APR uh, sanctions. So you end up with 294 eligible teams. And so I threw together a way in which, actually I, I put together two different ways in which every one of them could could make the NCAA tournament. You can read the whole piece at baseballamerica.com. The, the, the first way that you can do it is if you went back to six team, you know, we had six team regionals in the, the mid nineties, uh, right before they, they changed the field to expand it to 64 teams. And if you went back to six team regionals, you could hold two rounds of six team regionals and you'd have to massage it a little bit. There would be a couple seven team regionals, uh, but that's like the easiest way to do it. And eventually that spits out eight teams to go to Omaha. I am not a fan of that. The six team regionals, I don't think works in the 21st century or at least in the 2020s between, you know, a greater value we, we place on arm care, uh, the, you know, the TV situation, just a whole lot of things makes it less than ideal to do back-to-back weeks of six team regionals. Uh, so I created a slightly more convoluted plan uh, that would give buys to the top 16 teams then you would break into some kind of regional pods. There would be some play-in games. It's complicated to be sure, uh, but it does some things like is a little better for arms and rewards the best teams in the country, which also wouldn't happen in the the more straightforward model. Uh, So again, it's complicated. You kind of have to see the whole thing written out. It's not not the best audio. the audio medium is not the best way to, to convey that. So I'd encourage you to, to check that out if you're into that. Now, Joe, I did all of this knowing that this will literally never happen. Uh, but when I was actually thinking about it, you know, I, I understand why the ACC basketball coaches want to see every team make the tournament. I get what, what's happening here. I mean, the, the arguments for every team making it are that no teams got to play in the 2020 NCAA tournament we're sure that 2021 is going to be a strange season. Uh, you know, we, we aren't sure how much non-conference games will be able to be played. There are going to be schools out there that only play 30, 35 games. That's like 20 less than what you're used to seeing. There are a lot of conferences that have already done away with their conference tournaments. Uh, so there's, it's just going to be different. And this would, if, if we knew going into it that every team could make the NCAA tournament, that kind of a, eliminates some of the worries about the inequities that are undoubtedly going to crop up as you know, we try and, and navigate a season in which teams are not going to be playing the same number of games. Teams are, you know, some cases going to be more regional or just more conference oriented. That's going to make RPI very difficult. Uh, the more I think about it, the more I get concerned even about the regional advisory committees. Those are the coaches that in different geographic regions are responsible for ranking the teams in those regions. Well, if there aren't 
that many non-conference games. That's just fewer data points for them to point to and, and work through uh, organizing the teams. And, you know, I, if you just say every team's making the tournament, you eliminate a lot of these worries. It also decreases the value of the regular season to be sure, but it does do something. I, I see the benefits of an all-inclusive tournament. It's, I guess, my overall point. Yeah, I actually think, and first of all, I appreciate what you, what you did here. I think in the way you laid it out, um, you know, actually does a pretty good job of, of trying to still value the regular season as much as, as can be done in a tournament that includes every eligible team. But I actually think it makes more sense in baseball than it does in basketball in a lot of ways, because I think one of the limitations of baseball is that we are going to have a, a pretty large gulf, I think, between what the smallest possible schedule, what the smallest schedule we see, the most basic schedule we see in 2021, and the most normal schedule we see in 2021. I think it's going to be a pretty wide gulf, if I had to guess. Not, and that's that's just me. That is me speculating. I don't I don't know that for certain, but that, you know that's my my educated guess on that. Whereas in basketball, one is because basketball plays fewer games, so there's just not as much of an opportunity for there to be as wide a gulf. But I also think we've seen a lot of seen a lot of reporting already about how teams are preparing for that inevitability in basketball that that things are going to be a little bit a little bit wonky so I actually have a a decent amount of confidence that you know there's a a pretty small difference in what the smallest programs and the biggest programs are going to do in basketball and I also think that with this these pod situations that are kind of popping up in basketball I think there there is actually some thought being given to you know, we need to diversify the group of teams here. We can't just have the 16 best teams in college basketball shack up and play a, you know, play each other over and over and over again for a number of different reasons. You know, I'm less confident about that in baseball just because in basketball, I think there is some, the reality of the situation is there's, there's just more money to be made and there's, there's more to gain out of that. And in baseball, I think if, you know, we we try to do some of that stuff and and I still think there will be non-conference things going on but not to the same extent and I think I'd also say that like in basketball you know you you hear some talks about like them parking teams for two weeks and playing and like that's cool like give them enough off days and that's fine but like in baseball teams aren't built for that because if you do that that means you're putting not your best starters out there I mean it's possible it would be different though so it's just some of it's just a matter of how teams are built in the schedules right no, that, that's absolutely right. So I guess, you know, long story short, um, I just think basketball is actually, or baseball is actually built more to have a tournament like this than I think basketball is because I do think a tournament like this kind of uh, rectifies some of those, or at least makes good on some of those inequities that we see across the sport. Whereas basketball, I just don't think is going to have to worry about that much, this, that stuff as much. I also just think that you know, uh, conference tournaments are, are a big thing in college basketball. They, those things drive revenue sometimes and, and can actually be a, more of a spectacle. I don't think we've, now I don't keep up with the college basketball news side of things as much as college baseball, obviously, but, you know, conferences were very quick when, when things were starting to, to, to uh, take place in the spring. Conferences were very quick to say, okay, we're going to scale back our conference tournament from eight to six or six to four or eight to four or get rid of the conference tournament altogether. I don't know if that kind of stuff has happened in basketball just yet. And so I think that's a little bit telling there as well. And so, um, you know, long story short, you know, I think um, it's, again, it's never going to happen, but I do think baseball 
would be a better fit for this than, than basketball if you take kind of the arm care stuff out of it because obviously that's going to be a be a factor there I also thought it was I have, <laughs> I have to admit I thought it was funny that what you know we immediately after this this news broke about this being an idea put forth by ACC basketball coaches and and immediately some of the uh you know, some of the folks in college basketball media jumped in with the takes about why this would never work and why this is a terrible idea. And I, I just kind of wanted to pump the brakes through and be like, guys, like this is not actually happening. And I also don't think it was a super, like the coaches may have put that idea forward, but I also don't really believe that they thought it had much of a chance of ever being a thing. Like, I don't know that it was put forward as a serious proposal. I think that's kind of an opening negotiating um, piece to try to maybe make the tournament a little bit bigger, but I don't know that they actually ever believed that they'd have 352 teams or whatever in the NCAA basketball tournament when they put that out there. So there's really no need to launch into the telling people why it's a stupid idea, I don't think. Well, yeah, it was interesting that like within 24 hours, the NCAA's vice president of basketball operations or whatever Dan Gavitt's actual title is, uh, had like thrown cold water on it. And some people read his statement as like just totally eviscerating the idea. I didn't read it that way. I just read it as like, guys, we're not actually like thinking about this right now. And, you know, it's not a formal proposal. Like this was just the ACC coaches voting, but because the ACC coaches include Jim Beheim and Mike Krzyzewski and also, you know, some other big voices as well, uh, but those were two guys that you saw come out and talk about this on the record. Uh, and those are, you know, prominent, prominent, prominent coaches. You know, Coach K is probably the, I mean, it, Nick Saban might be the most prominent college athletics coach in the country. Coach K is probably number two. And honestly, it might be flipped. Um, you know, if his voice is behind it, it's significant. But yeah, I mean, it's not a real proposal right now. They're currently just trying to figure out what the regular season is going to look like in basketball, let alone what the postseason is going to look like. But all that said, like, you know, some of the, some of their points, like I definitely take, and I think apply to baseball as well. Like I said, and uh, is anyone talking about this in baseball? No, not really. Um, But, you know, I, I, I just think that, you know, expansion of the tournament in a year like this might be, a worthwhile topic to explore. It's tricky to do in baseball. Um, Jay Johnson has a plan to expand to 80. He just wants that done in a normal year. Uh, And that would mean five team regionals, which uh, I dive into a little bit because my plan, one of my plans includes five team regionals. And so a five team regional either looks like the four and five teams have a play in game uh, or you run a five-team double elimination tournament, which adds a little bit to the to the the regional weekend. Um, it would mean that every regional would extend into Monday, and when you throw in bad weather, it means that some regionals would extend into Tuesday. Maybe not optimal, but an idea. Uh, and, and anyway, I the, I would be in favor of some sort of expansion this year because I just really worry that if non-conference schedules are significantly cut back on or if we become more regionalized, uh, if the schedules become more regionalized this year, that the the selection committee, the RACs, whoever, is going to have a much harder time not looking at name bias or conference bias. 
And, you know, this might be how you get 11 SEC teams in a field, maybe even 12, just because you're going to look at it and you're going to see that they played all these games and they played all these brand name teams, most of whom are very, very good. And you're going to look at some of these other teams that just aren't going to have the chances to go out and get those marquee wins, maybe because their travel budget was cut maybe because their conference didn't allow them to play enough games for them to, you know, keep some of these marquee non-conference games, you know, whatever the reason, there are going to be some teams that, that just don't have the opportunity. And then it's going to be up to the committee, uh, which is going to be working with an RPI that isn't as good. It's going to be up to them to find a way to, to measure a team from the CAA against a team from the ACC. And, you know, it's, it's going to be hard for them. And, you know, in an expanded tournament, maybe that doesn't actually solve that problem. Maybe they just put in 14 SEC teams, but at least in an expanded tournament, there are more at large bids available. So I'm not sure that I would endorse full-on expansion. I don't know what the right number would be, but I do think that that needs to be something that, that gets talked about unless you can guarantee for me that, you know, this everyone this year is going to play 50 games or the, the vast majority of teams are going to play 50 games and you can't do that right now. So I, I do think that some idea of tournament expansion needs to be in the back of people's minds already. I think that's right. I would endorse that. I don't have much to add there. I think you did a good job of kind of laying that out. I, I think that's I think that's exactly right. That it should be something that um, you know we at least we at least start to talk about. Just you know, given that we we don't know what the twenty one season is going to look like just yet. So um, I get where it's coming from. Again, it's not going to happen, but I get where it's coming from, and I hope it does drive a conversation frankly, across all sports about expanded postseason opportunities because no, no sport is going to play anything close to a normal schedule this year. So uh, in baseball, I, put, I, I, I went through the trouble of putting together the plan. Whether that plan ever gets looked at by anyone, uh, you know, who knows. But uh, it's out there if you want to read it over at BaseballAmerica.com. Can you imagine the legal fees that involved in trying to figure out whether or not coaches are going to get paid out their NCAA tournament bonuses in a world where every team in basketball makes the NCAA tournament? As always, billable hours is the winner. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. With that, we're, uh, we're going to wrap it up here today on the Baseball America College podcast. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're listening to your podcasts. You can find us, rate, review, subscribe. We appreciate it all. Uh, and it helps other people to find the podcast as well. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And you can check out all of the content over at baseballamerica.com. We, uh, we will be back here next week with a new edition of the Baseball America College podcast. And again, if you are subscribed, that'll just pop right into your phone. So you can, uh, can check it out uh, when we come back next week. want to thank our sponsors, Keeps, and that uh, you, you can use our code. That's keeps.com slash baseballamerica. 
Thank you to Keeps. Thank you to my bookie. And thank you, as always, to Rapsodo for presenting the Baseball America College podcast. Check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. Thank you again to Greg Lovelady, UCF coach, for joining us here on the podcast. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll see you next time here on the Baseball America College podcast.